Progressive presents The Sounds of the Old World. The year is 2019, and someone is waiting for the previews to start in a movie theater. Hey, you want anything? Popcorn? Soda? No, nothing? This has been The Sounds of the Old World. Brought to you by Progressive, where drivers can still switch and save like it's 2019. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production. Brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, I'm Dhamini and you're listening to Gender Question. Here, we will look at an issue that's in the news using the lens of gender. The idea is to take a blind spot and throw some light on it. In this episode, we listen to Arvind Narayan, an advocate and one of the founding members of the Alternative Law Forum, talking about the struggle against Section 377, the same-sex marriage petitions, and other issues that confront marginalized gender and sexual identities. Arvind was speaking in a panel put together by DAS, a self-funded Goa-based collective that organizes talks to promote critical thinking every week, now on Zoom, otherwise in a cafe in North Goa, and on a range of subjects. Recently, Arvind, uh, Queeristan author Parmeshani, author and lawyer Alok Gupta, and I had had a chat about chronicling the queer movement. In the previous episode, you heard Parmesh and I speak. Thank you so much, Dhamini. Thanks a lot. You know, and really thank you for telling us the story of Dominic, because I think also because we are in Goa right now, and Dominic's story is so important because not only he was also the first sort of recorded, uh, sort of documented gay man, openly a gay man who was uh, who was infected with HIV and was uh, was criminalized in the country. And in many ways, Dominic sort of Dominic played a very similar role like Siddharth Gautam because you know, I mean, Anand tells the story beautifully because Anand made a promise to Dominic, and sort of Anand led on to that promise by fighting for rights for both people with HIV and also for the LGBTQ community. Nadan never fails to mention it. Every time he talks about Dominic, he talks about his deathbed promise that he made to him that he will always fight for the rights of HIV and then therefore going forward from their other marginalized communities. So it's wonderful that actually we are having this discussion, sort of hosting it from Goa because it's a wonderful contribution of Goa to the struggle. And in fact, as I invite uh, my friend Alvin now to speak, I wanted to, and I was mentioning this earlier that, uh, and Alvin and I have this memory of Goa that we will let, never escape us because we had come to Goa in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this is uh, when the Delhi High Court case was already going on. And, uh, and we actually did not have a, like a real documented case of somebody who was arrested under 377. And an Englishman uh, called Desmond Hope, which had went on to become the Hope case, uh, who was a tourist in India uh, with, his, with his boyfriend, was arrested under Section 377 by the Kolba police station in South Goa. And uh, and and he was his only crime actually was that he refused to pay the bribe. That was his essential crime. And because he didn't pay the bribe, he was arrested and he was in jail for thirty days. And in the and in in the sort of climate of Goa, the case got misrepresented as a case of a pedophile. Bail was denied, and then finally, after a lot of campaigning and a lot of work, he was finally granted bail. But uh, and I and I and you know I I, I wanted to sort of uh, recollect that with Domin uh, Arvind because if Arvind recollects you know despite the trauma that Desmond Hope went through a year later when Desmond Hope was back in England we wrote to him 
and we said that we would like you to give us an affidavit or we'd like to use your story in the in the Delhi High Court case. And uh, and uh, and you know he was the, the, the thing about striking about Desmond when we met him, but the Desmond is not white. So Desmond's family uh, are Trinidadian Indians. And uh, so he was this sort of Indian looking boy, uh, uh, but uh, from, uh, from Caribbean, from England, who was arrested. And uh, he actually gave his story and it went on to become a very important sort of account of persecution of gay people that was recorded in the 377 case in the Delhi High Court and in the Supreme Court. So it was another really great contribution. I mean, I've been, you know, um, you know, Leela and Urmila, Desmond Hope, you know, uh, Dominic D'Souza, so many great warriors, uh, people who've kind of really sort of the, uh, on, on whose back we fought this struggle. And we've come here and I, you know, and I think I, I do acknowledge the celebratory note in Parmesh's book. And I really do think there is reason to celebrate, especially with the kind of um, incredible dialogue and inclusion that we are seeing. But how do we understand it? Thanks a lot for the invitation. Also, thanks to both Parmesh and Damani for the for the sharing of the incredible work which is uh, which both of you are really doing. And um, perhaps uh, you may, did mention uh, our, our friend uh, Sudha Gautam, and I, I did speak about the report less than gay and the really very poignant and moving moving beginning point. It begins by tribute again to a black American gay writer. Uh, who some of you would have read, called James Baldwin. And he quotes James Baldwin who says, uh, the victim who is able to articulate the condition of his, uh, his or her victimhood is no more a victim. He or she has become a threat. So in a sense, Siddharth Gautam really set in place that idea that when you break the injunction to silence, you're in many ways beginning the LGBT struggle or the LGBT movement itself. And that moment from 1991, and we come to Parmesh and post-2018, when we're really talking about the celebratory moment, is really something which we have to acknowledge as being a very important, very powerful moment. But I want to go back to the Navtej judgment and in a sense look at some of the paths ahead which are embedded in the judgment itself. And one path which, which I found particularly important in moving, particularly in your area your of the right to marriage, is the is what Justice Chandrachud says in, um, in, the, in the judgment. He says, talking about the right to love, he says the right to love is not just a right for the LGBT community, it's a right for all of us. And he goes on to make a very important point. He says, when you talk about carnal intercourse against the order of nature, he says, what is against the order of nature? In the context of a heterosexist society, quite obviously, it's a question of the, the fact that relationships could, could be man-man or woman, woman-woman, which are considered against the order of nature. But in a context such as India, where caste is an important reality, where religion is an important reality, if you love across lines of religion or caste, as this history of this country has shown, you are liable to be chased by a family, some cases even killed by your own family members. And just think of the, think of it, family members have brought you up, your parents are happy to kill you because you violated the sense of honor of the community. Or what you violated is what, in, in the broadest possible sense, is the order of nature. So I think in some ways, I think the, when we're referring to the challenge 
of the marriage laws, there's also a deeply political dimension to that challenge. And I'll put it this way. Uh, India, we know, is a country in which marriage is a relationship which is really a relationship set in place by family members. It's meant to solidify a certain what families want their kids to do, to perpetuate the understanding of the family or the community itself. And when people choose to marry across lines of caste or religion, what they're doing is they're asserting their right to individuality. They're saying that, you know, community may believe some, some things or family may believe other things, but we have a certain internal desire, a certain kind of a love, and we will marry or we will be, we will go with the person that we love. And that's the articulation of the right to marry as a right of personal, right of individuality, as a part of your right to dignity. And it's a very important challenge to, a, to the notion of marriage as a community-based institution. And I think that the law which recognizes that at its heart is really the Special Marriage Act. And again, I think, uh, look, you know this, the history of the Special Marriage Act shows it's been a subject of enormous struggle. The Special Marriage Act is imperfect. It's in many ways still allows families a role to determine the choices of, the, of, the, of their children. But in spite of that, it's a very important inroad into the idea that, that marriages are something families decide for you. So I think in, in the, if you put it that way, as a right to love, as a radical questioning of the norms of family and norms of community. I think we may look at the same-sex marriage. It's one step in that similar direction where we're saying that, you know, we're going to challenge. Again, you go back to your bit in the annihilation of caste. The point he makes is marriage in most societies is an ordinary incident of social life. But in the context where, where you can't marry those lines of caste, it assumes a deeply revolutionary significance. And annihilation of caste, one of the strategies he puts forward in terms of the annihilation of caste is, inter, is love across lines of caste and religion. So I think there's something very radical about the marriage project in the Indian context. That being said, I completely agree with Damani that that's only one dimension of a range of struggles in which LGBT people are embedded. I'll give you one last example, maybe end with that. And uh, uh, we all know the question of the, of the lockdown and the kind of impact that the lockdown had. And in the Karnataka High Court, one of the petitions filed was for the right to food, as far as the, in particular the transgender community. We know that in the context of a lockdown, again, when, when Mr. Modi says that uh, uh, you, it's a lockdown, go inside your homes, maintain your social, social distancing, I think it's something all of us should do because we have the privilege and the ability and the responsibility to do that. But what Mr. Modi seems to be ignoring is that a large majority of people in this country don't have the same privilege. They don't have the sense of privacy. They don't have the sense of home. They're not able to maintain that social distancing because there are 10 people living in a small little house. And it is in a context such as that, that when you say, when you impose a lockdown of this, this kind of a severity without, without any planning, without any, without any making provision for people, what we've experienced in the Karnataka context is a transgender community was, felt, was left abandoned. Because the point again is what is the ability to negotiate a decision such as this? In the middle class, we have certain ability to negotiate it because we have certain resources. But if you happen to be living on a day-to-day, -day, if a daily wage earner, and if you're right, if your food tomorrow depends on, the, on, the, on your work yesterday, then you're in a very difficult, a very vulnerable position. 
So I'll just end with that and say that I think there are a range of, as Damini rightly put it, marriage is a very important issue in terms of the way we're thinking about it. And also in terms of the idea of, as she, as she, as she, beautiful, as she beautifully put it, that uh, there must be a social recognition of loss. You know, and that's, that's something people want. There must be a social recognition of a relationship. You can't be invisible for the rest of your lives. And that's a very important dimension of the marriage, of the marriage question. But it's not the only question. There's a question of discrimination at the workplace. There's a question of your, you being at the lower end of the socioeconomic strata and your ability to negotiate really difficult decisions which the government may impose upon. So I think there are a range of challenges which we have to confront. And perhaps another direction to think of taking up from Parmesh's work is the idea of a non-discrimination law where we have to look at the question that people face discriminatory attitudes and discrimination in the context of the workplace, in the context of their living arrangements, in the context of rental agreements, in a range of range of spaces. Really. So we have to think of relationship recognition, we have to think of non-discrimination, and we have to think in some sense of addressing the, the structures of social, uh, social and economic marginalization as well. So I think we're in a very, very, we've come a long way, and that's 100%, 100% about that. Because if you'd asked me in 1999, will the 377 will go in your lifetime? I'd have said, no, there's no question. We're doing this for the future generation. It would have been my answer. But that answer, obviously, we've we, we found some kind of a, some kind of a end point too. But there are new struggles ahead and new paths ahead. And uh, I think there's a, there's a famous poem which, which Nehru is very fond of, fond of which ends uh, Robert Frost stopping by the woods on, the, on a snowy, uh, snowy evening. It says, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have miles to go, miles to go before I sleep and I have promises to keep. And I think that's really the place I think we are, we are at. And maybe one, since I'm on a poetry uh, line, one last poem, I'll just go to end with this. Um, we were, again, the, uh, when, when 2013, the judgment uh, came about, which is a deep disappointment, I remember our friend Akhil Katil quoted this poem again, or, or uh, in Hindi, in, uh, again, by a black American gay poet called Langston Hughes. It goes something like this. What happens to dream effort? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it run like stinking meat or does it explode? And his point was, the Supreme Court may impose this judgment upon us, but our dream will explode. So the question I think we're left with is, is the dream exploding? Alok made an important point of how both same-sex marriage and economic equality create legitimacy for LGBT persons. Uh, thank you, guys. And I think this is really great. And, you know, I'm really excited that in the audience we have, uh, we have Ashwini Suktankar, our dear old friend who wrote Facing the Mirror. I'm just talking about chronicling, you know. Uh, we have uh, Mario de Pena, who's an amazing historian. We're a historian. We have... Uh, Jaya, Jaya was around. I still see Jaya. We have Jaya Shri uh, uh, from uh, who's running this incredible archive in Bangalore and made this incredible documentary about the 377 uh, movement at that time. Uh, in fact, I'm mean, just you know, just, and the process of the chat, uh, our conversation. Sopan just privately messaged me and said that he has actually made a, a documentary on Dominic called "The Dominic's Dream." And I think it's just wonderful, like actually in many ways that I think this is a, it's, it's an incredible experience of Indian queer people that because we have been part of this incredible movement, we've all become archivists in some way. And we've all been archiving the sort of movement in our own ways. And, uh, and many people, many desires. Yes, Parmesh, that was Jashree's documentary. And we've all been archiving, writing, documenting this incredible movement and the changes that are happening and, the, and, and also understanding the sort of incredible complexities and diversities of the struggle. At this point, 
we opened up the panel for discussion. Okay, let me read a question from Jaya, guys. Do panelists have any concerns about the implications of same-sex marriage for exclusion based on respectability? The married couple will be the respectable ones. The danger of reducing the importance of queer families not limited to sexual relationships. The importance of activist agendas such as those related to the living will inheritance outside of coupledom. And, you know, I'm really glad Jaya asked that question because actually, you know, really, uh, Siddharth Gautam actually phrases a really interesting question in Less Than Gay. And he says that, you know, why do I have to love someone to get married? Why can't I get married to my friend? And something that Dhamini also questions, uh, you, you also question Saurabh. You know, I mean, but it also ties into this complicated idea that while we are seeking marriage, we're also sort of legitimizing this, this, this structure of sanction that we kind of have to work and operate within that. And, and it's sort of, it's also, so it's a double-edged sword. We want it, but it also kind of ties up within that structure. And Pavish, would you like to talk about that a little bit? I mean, I know the marriage is so important for everyone. I get it. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Jaya, I mean, personally, yeah, I grapple with this uh, every day in terms of, you know, where I stand on it in terms of what it will empower versus um, what it might exclude both at a at a personal level as as well as at a political level at the same time i also grapple with my own desires um with my own um you know i think um inherent like you know conditioning um and i question also with because you know if you ask me uh, would i want to get married um you know i'm 44 now um i've been wanting to get married for um for the past, I would say, 30 years or so. And where does this wanting to get married come from, um, right? Um, so, I mean, just, Jaya, to answer you, do, do I have any concerns about this? Yes, um, it's it's uh, all the time. And it's not just this that I have concerns about, right? I have, I'm deeply conflicted about, you know, my stance and the perspective I've chosen to take in the book. Um, this rosy picture that I'm painting, this this glass is half full, this um, particular perspective of hope and optimism that I recognize is is, is necessary for my stated objective. But in uh, in choosing to focus on uh, what is working and 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 with a hopeful perspective, um, am I overlooking, brushing under, um, not focusing enough on the serious structural um, inequalities within not just our country, but within our queer movement, um, uh, you know, in, in this whole section whereby, I mean, I, I, I hinted at it earlier where before I make a case for why one should include, you know, money, innovation, etc. I mean, in the book itself, there's a chapter that says, um, it's essentially a decent thing to do. And then I spend the whole chapter writing about what does it mean to be decent and do the decent thing. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, one wouldn't have to state such things. You know, just as I pass to, uh, the mic to either Arvind or Dhamini, I mean, Sammy asked a really important question, which is sort of uh, connects to that. And this is something that, which is a central question in queer activism. Isn't marriage a heteronormative proposition? How does our queerness deal with this dichotomy? Let me say this. I have been with my partner for 21 years. If same-sex marriage is legalized through the Special Marriages Act, I'm going to get married. Because I, no, I'm totally going to get married because he has a very sweet piece of beach land in Chennai and his mother is never going to give it to me if I'm not married to him. So, 
hey, yes, I'm going to get married. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not agreeing to this, but anyway. <laughs> but Doc, you have a question, come. Yeah, hi. So, okay, I'm going to hijack this to ask a question. Um, well, it, it's, it's a very topical question. I mean, uh, I want to ask all the panelists, like, from, their, from what they know about their friends, the communities that they're part of, how has COVID affected the community? And I'm asking this, you know, because in some ways it's been positive. I mean, you know, for the for instance, like because of COVID for the first time after 21 years of being together, Alok and I are actually living together. But on the other hand, uh, so much of what we, we've built over the last few years has been about the community coming together, about, you know, coming out of our closets, about meeting, about prides, about festivals like Kashish. And suddenly all that is no longer possible. Um, so I just want to ask all the panelists, like what, and of course we're hearing stories of, you know, people coming, you know, mental problems, uh, you know, depression. Uh, there certainly mean a lot of suicides. Um, and again, there are issues again of, of couples, you know, if, if one of us were to fall uh, sick with COVID, I mean, uh, you know, uh, this, is, and this is the thing about marriage. I mean, you know, uh, when we take, go, into, uh, go to hospital, would we be able to, uh, see each other in hospital. So, uh, uh, you know, a whole range of issues thrown up by that. Well, just a, a quick point on that, that the community is very broad and diverse. But I, I just mentioned a little bit, actually, that uh, it's a very negative impact, particularly on the trans community. And I'm mentioning this in terms of the petition, which is fine, in terms of an issue which we might not even think of as an issue, right? Here is a petition, file saying your right to food, you know. Saying that you know when the gum when 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 we're deprived of livelihood and we have no way of getting food, then the state has an obligation to provide us rations. That's the fundamental effect. You know, it's as fundamental as that. When some people don't have enough to eat, you know, and other people are saying, hey, you know, we we're concerned with social distancing norms. And I'm saying that such diverse realities in the, in this country, right? And I just want to mention that part of it. I think the other dimensions maybe uh, uh, Parmesh and Dhamni can also speak about. Uh, no, so I, I think that uh, um, to, to take forward Arvind's point, um, of course, it has had a very, uh, uh, you know, negative impact in, uh, on some, you know, members of the community. I, but the thing is that uh, uh, how do we then understand community in this context of COVID, right? Uh, so, for example, uh, women who are, you know, within sort of, say, domestic spaces where they face abuse, uh, where, you know, they may have wished to sort of, you know, leave home, uh, may have sought, may have, you know, tried to seek uh, state help or help of shelter homes, have not been able to do it because, um, you know, shelter home uh, officials were not designated as essential services. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, and, and also so that then, you know, people with disabilities, for instance, how did they get access? How would they get uh, uh, access to medical care, which was so essential and needed for them? So, I mean, also, you know, various members of the community facing various kinds of, you know, um, uh, in non-COVID times, various kinds of discrimination, how those got deepened during uh, COVID. I think that is a that is something that we are all sort of, you know, and that's something that I was also trying to chronicle at some level 
you know, uh, through multiple like conversations with people and through my podcast and some stories, uh, Arvind's point of the right to food petition itself, of course, is a very big, you know, uh, indication. Uh, one thing that I also saw uh, uh, and, you know, sort of documented was how uh, so many people who did not have the luxury of uh, social distancing really uh, uh, actually came out to volunteer help. And this was particularly seen, I mean, you know, within trans communities as well, that there was this huge concerted effort, particularly in states like Tamil Nadu, for instance, you know, where a lot of people came out to actually help other trans uh, uh, men, women, and other members of the community, intersex members of the community. So uh, I think that, yeah, the effect has been very deep. But uh, it has also led to uh, a lot of effort on part of community members as well, you know, to, to address this. Just one line that uh, in the context of a pandemic, the other thing we realized is people on the margins become even more invisible or get even as Dominic rightly indicated, completely fall off the lens, you know. And that's the that's the that's where the right to food petition had to be filed, right? Because when the right to food petition was filed, uh, the very smart People are everybody's in distress, right? You're talking about slum communities, you're talking about migrant labor, a range of groupings were in deep distress. But when that distress came in, sex workers and trans people just fell off the fell off the fell off the fell off the page, you know, they just weren't there. So it's also for us to think about what happens to marginalized people in the context of something like a pandemic. And that's the I think the point we have to think about because it's easy to th- not easy, it's easier to think of marginalized communities in the context when there is no immediate crisis. When a crisis comes, then they just fall off the radar. Right? And that's, you can think about it, right? The discussion should be, if you're talking about sex workers, I'm like, your right to livelihood is gone, right? So what does the state, has the state made any effort to make provision for these groups and communities? And that's the question one has to ask. And why isn't it in people's heads? Why are people not thinking about this? And that's the structural way, I think, disasters work to push marginalized communities to further the, ed- the edges, as it were, and sometimes completely off the table. So I'd like to now sort of go back to the managed issue a little bit. And I think there's some really interesting points emerging. And, you know, Mario raised a really interesting point. And I'm, I'll come also to uh, uh, Abhra Singh Roy's point. But and I think Abhra's point is, let me, first, let, let me first address Abhra's point. I think Abhra's point is something that Alvin has kind of talked about. So let me just read it out. Abhra says, also, endogamy is something that has been a regressive force in our country being deeply about caste, religion, and caste. Also, among the many legal propositions for same-sex marriage, one of them is within the Hindu Marriage Act, which seems probably would be dealt with because of its possible ways of polarizing Muslims and Dalits. Any comments about it? Uh, I mean, I'll just say quickly, Abra, actually, the there was, I mean, well, the interesting diversity of the queer community right now is that we actually have very strong queer Hindu voices that are sort of very strongly aligned with the BJP right. And it's quite just, just how things are right now. And uh, and so some members of that uh, those groups filed a case in the Delhi High Court, if I'm not mistaken, Dhamini, asking for same-sex marriage through the Hindu Marriage Act, not the Special Marriages Act. And the Indian go- the the uh, the the BJP government uh, basically can oppose that claim very strongly, saying that. Uh, uh, they, while the BJP supports the decriminalization of homosexuality under 377, it sees the demand for same-sex marriage as an affront to uh, Hinduism. You know, Mario said a very interesting thing, you know, and I kind of connect to what Parmesh also said, and Dhamni also said, Navind also said, is that why are we not galvanizing as a movement asking for an anti-discrimination law? 
I know that it's a really tough call and the parliamentary procedures are very weak and things take a lot of time. So everybody goes to court because there's a hope that a court will actually grant quick decisions. But why don't we have a galvanized national movement asking for a central anti-discrimination law against LGBTQ people? Arvind. Yeah, I, I, I think the the point worth thinking about again, I guess uh, both Dhamini and Parmesh would be better able to put this, is what is it which moves people, right? What are the issues which have that ability to mobilize people around the country? Trisandasan had that ability because it stood in for a range of things at the end of the day. It wasn't just a question of the sexual act, but it stood in for dignity, stood in for a sense of, you know, a sense of uh, 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 freedom from being a second class citizen. I think marriage has a similar kind of a pull because it's everybody's experience. Everybody knows that at, at, at some level or the other. I think the anti-discrimination law, we have to make it a more of a popular movement where people understand what its value and its importance is and build it as a campaign. Saying that, you know, um, I, I can Im I mean, Parmesh, you're the, you're the man on this. How do you do a campaign, right, which, which communicates the issue of discrimination and what discrimination could mean to you and why we need a law to address this, right? And that's the work, hard work, which might need to happen. And on the marriage question, can I add one more line? Uh, sure, yeah, please. Yeah. A quick line on that is, uh, I think the, if I can segue a little bit into this, since we had a number of questions on, on marriage, I mean, I agree with the sense of critique of the institution of marriage. But I think what we have to recognize, which I recognize at least, is that there are a range of voices with a range of different ways of thinking about this particular institution. And again, my friend uh, uh, Rumi in Bangalore, she, uh, they made this uh, very, very, very important point. This, uh, they said that you, know, you speak to people, right from the people who are the poorest to people who are very well, very, very well off. People want to get married. And that seems to be a reality which is there across the board. You know? And the people who, are, who say it's a critique and have a problem with it and who understand the political dimensions of it, perhaps, or maybe people who are better, better educated or more educated as it were. So how do you find a balance between the critique and the reality? And there is a possibility of doing that because I think it's a question in some senses of, of, of putting forward or, or a critique more uh, in, in more and more forms. Again, going back to the question, I mean, I want to just quote Marx on this point. Uh, Parmesh, don't laugh at me. Uh, <laughs> it, it that, uh, you know the, the point about religion is the opium of the masses. But the previous part of it says, Religion is the heart of a heartless world, is the sigh of the oppressed creature, it is the opium of the masses. So, by which Marx is meaning to say that it's not a dismissal or dismissing religion. You're saying it answers to some deep sense of meaningfulness as well as people are concerned. Because in a heartless world, it's something people go back to. That's his understanding. So, in a similar sense, marriage seems to provide some sense of a security, some sense of recognition, something it answers very deep in people's need, you know. And so if there are, I mean, to think creatively, I think in, in a queer sense, is how do you provide people with a sense of belonging and sense of need through alternative institutions? Can that become in a way something which gives people a sense of belonging? Because then your critique won't be a critique which is purely an abstract critique. It'll be a critique which will, which will have a creative possibility embedded in it. What is the way forward? You'll be able to tell people that as well, you know. Parvish, you, know, you, you talk about the risk of tokenism. And one of the most important caveats in the book is about how whether LGBT inclusion can just become a tokenism and will it just be left there. But how do we create a, 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 an environment, a sort of a, a, a culture where it's something that's just done? It's not done out of tokenism it's, and it's protected. 
slowly and in through multiple touch points i mean i think that's the thing it's not going to happen overnight of course of course um and it is going to happen through you know various methods um whether media um you know the popular the impact of a sh- of a show like satyamev jayate that everyone sees the impact of an amir khan um you know um having a, a range of individuals on the show um you know that one moment in that show where gazal dhaliwal's uh, parents accept her and say we went you know to everyone's house and said our you know our son is now our daughter and we urged our neighbors to accept her right did so much more for um just understanding um in that country right so i think there's multiple things that we that we need to do but just to go back to the previous thing very briefly i think um i i personally don't feel the reason for us to like have a hierarchy of what we should be fighting about next in the movement i think you know one of the one of the things that has changed also in the past 20 30 years is now there are so many people out there who are willing to like you know engage with multiple struggles and multiple fronts and that's a pleasure so i don't think we should i mean you know why do we imagine that this world of justice out there is so limited that we need to kind of arrange our demands in some kind of hierarchy and say we want this first we want this next um simply because that's how we did it with 377 because we kind of felt we had to all galvanize around 377 doesn't mean that we need to follow the same template around marriage right um we also have a terrible trans uh, act which is you know which is in play um and for a lot of people including me um it's it's uh, you know this is something that we have to like struggle against um so now there's enough of us um to struggle on multiple fronts and say that this is you know this is also as important let's think about an anti discrimination law what how would the contours of that be um for large number of people since marriage is important and marriage seems to resonate a lot with mainstream um society and can open this window for acceptance in multiple ways um how about you know that being one parallel front of struggle so i'm just you know i think we should um, I, i talk about this briefly in the book where mona el tahavi uses this crumbs analogy and says that she uses this in, in the context of feminism and say for so long we've been used to having these crumbs that we kind of fight for the crumbs events amongst ourselves and we don't realize that we can have bigger pieces of the cake or we can bake bigger cakes for ourselves right so i'm you know i don't think that we should be saying either or in terms of our struggles or our desires um i would like um a better trans act that is not disrespectful um uh, to our trans breath you know uh you know brothers and sisters i would like and you know progress towards an anti discrimination you know bill or laws however i think it's going to take longer though um and i would also like marriage equality not just same sex marriage but you know a broader idea of what you know what queer marriage can be namri i wanted to actually ask you to conclude with uh, you told me as we started that you were working on a story about uh, a lesbian couple from gujarat can you tell us a little bit about that Okay so um it's interesting because it's kind of like 30 years after uh, uh, 33 years after Leela and Urmila's case uh, the two police women from Madhya uh, Pradesh 
who you began uh, this conversation with talking about what happened to them. And just last week, I spoke with um, one of the police women of a couple who are based in uh, Baroda and Gujarat, and they don't want their names uh, revealed. But they had uh, reached out to the Gujarat High Court a few months ago um, and uh, managed to receive a protection order. And this has been happening a lot, in fact, post Naftage, that a lot of uh, lesbian couples particularly are, are reaching out to multiple courts around the country, high courts around the country, and seeking police protection from their own families, um, uh, you know, uh, because they, they want to stay together and they're, they're consenting adults and, you know, and, and yet they're not being sort of allowed to and permitted to and in worst cases, of course, abuse, abused and beaten and so on. Uh, so this police couple went ahead and got this police, got this protection from the Gujarat High Court. And what is interesting is uh, that they had performed a ceremony called Maitri Karaj. And, uh, you know, and this is something that Maya Sharma writes about in her book, in her 2004 book, uh, Loving Women, as a practice that, interestingly enough, actually has its origins, uh, I think, after the HMA came up for, uh, uh, you know, privileged upper caste Hindu men to uh, seek some kind of validation for their, quote unquote, mistresses. Um, you know, uh, and uh, so basically it, it allowed a certain kind of financial partnership right, which was outside of the, the marriage. And so uh, a lot of uh, couples, in fact, uh, same-sex couples or LGBT couples have been also, uh, particularly in Gujarat, have been using the Maitri Karaj uh, as a way of like seeking some kind of social extra-legal validation, right? Um, so this couple had done that and then approached the court and the court recognized that they had done this and that they are adults and that you know there is consent and therefore they should have whatever protection that they need to stay but what's interesting to me and i was discussing this with my colleague drubo uh is that uh, just you know like again in terms of this like what happened in 87 and what is happening in 2020 uh when i was talking to uh one of the women in this uh, couple she said, you know, I asked her, okay, so did you face any problem from, you know, your uh, police station? She said, no, not at all. I said, okay, what about, you know, the, the chief of your police station? She said, no, that's, you know, in fact, the, the, um, the scene, I, I don't think it was a senior inspector. I think it was a, a higher rank, uh, uh, was a woman. She actually wrote a letter saying that, you know, she wrote a letter to one of the uh, uh, police women's family saying that, you know, please stay out of it. This is, you know, their matter. You can't do anything to them. You know, so there was that kind of support from their workplace. Um, they lived together. They met each other when they were in police training school. Uh, they lived together since then. You know, so their batchmates kind of knew uh, or didn't know. But nobody was really, you know, like bothered or bothered them and here i was you know like trying to dig in and like you get you know like oh but you know did this happen did anything happen and she was like you know hey <laughs> all good all we needed was police protection because you know our family wasn't and and that for me actually was uh yeah it was a bit of a <laughs> pause moment that listen <laughs> there are these stories as well so yeah that was so beautiful, Dhamini. <laughs> Arvind, uh, a concluding comment, and then I will ask Parmesh to conclude in the end. Yeah, no, I'll just maybe pick up from some of the comments that were made in the please, chat. Please, Both uh, Jaya's comment as well as Ashwini's comment. And the idea that uh, we are in a very, in some senses, very difficult and a very challenging moment in the, in the history of, of, of this country. 
where the your right to dissent is very much under threat you know and in particular if you want to put it in a in a legal sense the problem we have in terms of the law is the uapa and this is important for all of us to know because under the uapa if you if you say or do something or you prepare to say or do something which the government in its wisdom considers to be either unlawful or a terrorist act you could be put away in jail for up to 10 years you know and that's 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 just thinking about it is just shocking and so chilling and especially activists who are fighting on issues of environment activists who are fighting on issues of civil liberties activists who are in any sense challenging the government have been put away for years years up to years and dominy in terms of journalists the guy, the guy who went to cover the hatras raid from from kerala he's been charged with the uap and put away for uh, and as of now he hasn't he's not out on bail as yet and just imagine we're going to cover an incident from i mean what you were describing if you're going to talk to uh, to somebody right and the, the police decide that that is something which is problematic and they file a case against the uap under you because of the way the law is structured you could spend up to 10 years in jail and that's the i think the very very dangerous kind of a situation which we have to factor in in terms of people who might be might want to challenge the state at some point in time and i think again alok in terms of the challenge the state i think it will come when we're talking about the special marriage act talking about hindu marriage act talking about the core of what it means to be religious and these are not going to be easy fights i think we are prepared for moving in a sense we had a wonderful celebratory moment but we are prepared for a longer struggle in terms of how we now uh, fight with other social movements the kind of forces which are going to oppress us you know which are going to come for us and i think it's important to be prepared and understand the fact that you know uh, as we as as we say as as, as ashwini put it all our struggles are connected and you know and your humanity a threat to your humanity is also affects my humanity and i think that's the philosophy which we need to in a sense engender take forward and that takes us in a sense back to the founding moment of what we call queerness right when we say what do we mean by the word queer what do we mean by the word queer the fact that we see our struggles in some uh, in some sense is connected and a battle for human dignity in one place is a battle for human dignity everywhere hence the last chapter of queerestan is this grand recognition at least in the context of the book um that all these changes will only happen <clears throat> many recognize in some sense that our struggle for queer rights is linked to the anti caste movement is linked to the movement for the environment <clears throat> globally is linked to black lives matter and how do we build these bridges of solidarity certainly we need to build more bridges within the queer movement uh, for sure but also with other movements so that we can progress on these multiple fronts that we spoke about in that in that context i mean just as a concluding comment i think it would be very useful for people who are listening to follow um there's great work happening out there so much of the work is is uh, i mean you know uh, there's ya all in manipur for example right i mean or um i spoke about dalit queer and uh, chinki homo and queer muslim project etc many of these are like youth led many of these are hybrid models of online offline many of them are space solace amplification um of intersectional voices uh, that then blends into you know a physical community etc but i think um engage with so many of these incredible young activists young spaces which are coming about across our country um to really understand where things are going ahead if you have any questions do reach out to me at the red dhamini on twitter You can also leave your feedback at HT Smartcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Bye.
This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.